I'm going to be reading from 2 Timothy 3, uh, beginning in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we again just thank you for all that you have revealed to us. And we know that you um, have not told us all things because we are finite and we could not comprehend all things. But all that you've given us is necessary um, for life with you. And we thank you, God, that it is a complete revelation for all that is needed. And I pray that as we look at your word and talk on these things um, this morning, that our hearts will be drawn to you and we, Lord, would just be grateful for all that you've given us in Christ and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> um, I'm going to, this morning, start a short series. Every series I do is short because... I'm short. Um, and it will be, um, I want to cover the Bernie Bible Church Statement of Faith. I don't think I've ever done that in 30 years of preaching here at Bernie Bible. But the church has been, um, is going through a, a time of, of growth and there are a lot of new folks that, are, that have just started coming in the last couple of years. And, um, and so we just want to, want for all of us to be clear on what the Statement of Faith is for Bernie Bible Church. Now, the Statement of Faith, just to say at the outset, is, is not a condition for fellowship. Um, not at all. We fellowship around the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. And there are never going to be any two people that agree on every single point. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. I mean, we, we have to... We will change our opinions from time to time. We grow, we learn, God gives us new insight on things we study. And so this is, the statement of faith is not a basis for, oh, you can't come to this church if you don't agree with every point. We're not saying that whatsoever. But um, we would hope that when you read the statement of faith and understand what it is, that if you um, feel very strongly about something that is contradictory to the statement of faith, that you wouldn't come in and try to make us as you would want us to be. Because that's not fair. Um, it, you know, you, you go into somebody's home, you don't expect them to adopt your customs. But you would, would blend and, and, and mend to them, um, um, come together with them as much as is possible. But this is not, again, about fellowship, but it is about... Um, it would be about joining the church. We would expect that anybody that would join the church would, would be able to embrace the statement of faith and, um, and say, yeah, I'm in agreement with this. Uh, so that's the, the main thing. And, and those that teach here and, and preach here, we would expect that they too would be able to accept the statement of faith as it is written. And that's a, a very important thing. It's nice to be able to say we agree. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? 
And so it's a, it's a very important principle that we be able to say on these things, we agree. Again, it doesn't, our statement of faith is 12 points. It doesn't cover everything, um, but it covers the things that we consider to be important. Um, I remember when I had my, my Harley motorcycle, I, I didn't know until that time of um, what a brotherhood that is. And it's kind of nice. You get on your motorcycle and crank it up and you go rumbling through town and, and you pass another motorcycle and they have this secret wave. I never even noticed it before until I had a motorcycle. And you put your, your left hand down. You don't raise it up or anything. It's just kind of left, you know, it's down to the side. And you just kind of do, you know, a little handshake down here or a finger, you know. And the other guy's doing the same thing and, you know, it's pretty cool, man. You're in the brotherhood. And so, you know, and so I immediately became part of a brotherhood and I was quite proud of that. Until I, you know, I got rid of my motorcycle and now the brotherhood doesn't recognize me anymore. (laughs) In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus wrote and he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. In Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. Now, when we stand back and look at all these scriptures and what particularly 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying that it is inspired. What this means, inspiration is the activity of God whereby he used men with their individual personalities and styles to record his revelation to man without error in the original manuscripts. Inspiration does not mean that God breathed upon what was already written and thereby inspired it. Inspiration means that the very words came from God. They are His words. Hence the common refrain of the prophets, Thus saith the Lord. It is the writings that are inspired. The Bible never says the writers are inspired. God did not inspire the men. He inspired the writings. God used the writers with their minds, their vocabularies, their personalities, But he did not inspire them. It is the writings that are inspired. And so inspiration as, now this was, this has been a, for for the first, oh, 15, 16, even 17 centuries, theologians did not dispute the, the concept of inspiration. And they were all on the same page of what that meant. But there came a time, one person called it the, the period of, of, um, Departure, I think you described it, and he said that, that people began to question the doctrine of inspiration. So much so that a few stalwart um, evangelical Orthodox believers stood up against it, and they were already quite alone in the battle. And one of the first and best known was um, a Princeton theologian seminary professor by the name of B.B. Warfield. And what he wrote is still standard today. And he pointed out that Inspiration does not mean that God, that that bunch of people just wrote a book and God somehow blessed it, somehow mystically, magically inspired it. He just did something to it and made it his word. That is not what inspiration means. But inspiration means the words that come out of God's mouth. They are his words. And again, this this is why the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. So it's not God just somehow magically blessed this book. 
These were the, these, this book is the very word of God. There is nothing else that compares to it. Now the next part of our statement of faith says that inspiration means without error in the original manuscripts. No errors. Now I want you to think about this very simple syllogism. I first heard this from Norman Geiser, and he taught this for most of his life, and he was, just again, a stalwart in, in upholding the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. And so without error means to be inerrant. And yes, the word inerrant does not occur in our Bibles. And I was um, in a discussion about this matter with some of our European friends um, that are part of Torchbearers and and emails that were going back and forth. And one um, German friend said, "The, the word inerrant is not in the Bible. We should not be making a big deal about this. And I maybe, you know, was a bit too cheeky, but I responded and I said, none of our German or English words were in the original. The word Bible is not in the Bible. And so we are, it doesn't mean that it's not true because the word isn't there. So here's the syllogism to get a hold of that Norman Geiser used to give all the time. First premise, God cannot err. Does anybody have any problem with that? Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. But, you, but you know, if God is truth, and he is, God is truth. He cannot lie. He cannot be wrong. It is impossible for God to err. You and I err all the time. Sometimes I, I talk to the students and I'll say, it is impossible for God to lie. And some, one time I remember a couple of girls, boy, they just really bowed up. And they go, you're saying it's impossible for God to do something. The Bible says nothing's impossible for God. I'm going, the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. I'm quoting scripture here. When it says that nothing is impossible for God, what it means is nothing that God can't do. There's nothing he cannot do within the confines of his own person, within the confines of truth. So there is, God cannot be wrong. God cannot err. God can't make a mistake. God can't learn because he is all-knowing. There is nothing he doesn't know. He can't be ignorant about anything. God cannot err. This is just a basic postulate concerning God. Second premise. The Bible is the Word of God. Is the Word of God. Not becomes the Word of God. Is the Word of God. Most evangelicals would not have a problem with that statement. The Bible is the Word of God. So if those two premises are both true. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God then the logical conclusion is, therefore, the Bible is without error. It's as simple as that. God cannot err. The Bible is the Word of God. Therefore, the Bible is without error. Geisler used to say, I haven't found anybody that can refute the logic and the simplicity of those three statements. And I am in agreement with him. It's as simple as that. If God cannot err, and the Bible is the Word of God, then the Bible is without error. Now let me follow up, because I know there's questions in your minds about that. Quoting from B.B. Warfield, he said, Inspiration is not an a priori argument. In other words, it's not a presupposition that we start with when we're talking about the Bible. 
But he said, the, this is inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. This is the Bible's testimony about itself. The Bible claims to be without error. That's why Jesus said not one letter, not one stroke, not one smallest part of a letter will, will fail before it is all fulfilled. Everything's going to be fulfilled. Nothing will pass away. That's why the author in one of the chapters of Proverbs says every single word of God has been tested and been found to be true. So this position, as I said, was, was the position of virtually all theologians until the time of the Great Departure. Augustine wrote to Jerome, early church fathers, I believe it was in the 300s AD. I have learned, Augustine said, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of the Bible. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. Now, that's going back centuries. Modern Scholars would say the doctrine of inerrancy is a modern thing that has been made. And it is not the ancient teaching of the church. I don't know how they can say that with a straight face. We have such clear declarations like this. That the authors were completely free from error. It seems to me the most disastrous consequence must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. If you once admit into such a high sanctuary of authority one false statement, there will not be left a single statement of those books which if, which if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe may not by the same fit, fatal rule be explained away. Amen. This is the inerrancy of Scripture that the Bible is inspired and has no errors in it, this is the watershed issue of theology. If there are errors in the Bible, the Bible is not trustworthy. And interpretation becomes dependent upon the experts. There is an excellent lengthy article called The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I would recommend everybody find it. It's on the internet. and Read it sometime. It's a number of pages long, something like 15, 20 pages. And it got hammered out back in the 1970s. The leading theologians from the United, around the United States and Canada and, and Europe, but mainly the United States, got together, sat out in Chicago, and, they, and, and in pushing back against the liberalism of the day, particularly Fuller Seminary, which was kind of at the front tip of the spear and changing its doctrine of inspiration and saying it does not include inerrancy, that all these... Theologians got together and they handed out this statement called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it is tremendous. It is very, very well done. I encourage you to, to read it. But here's what we're not saying. We are not saying that God inspired the copies. There is nothing in Scripture that says the copies of the Bibles that we have today are inspired. God inspired the originals. So are there errors in our copies? Simple answer is yes. But there are, there is, are no contradictions. There, there is no doctrine that's in question. And we can even um, liberal manuscript scholars, textual critics they're called, studying the manuscripts, will say that the Bible, one estimate, the best of the, the highest of the estimates, guy A.T. Robertson said, the Bible as we have it, the New Testament as we have it, without having any original manuscripts, 
is at least 99.9% true to the original. And that's coming from a liberal who doesn't even believe in the doctrine of inspiration. So here's the thing. When I spent, back in 2017, a a few weeks talking about bibliology, how we got our Bible. And so one of the things that I pointed out in one of those sermons is the mountain of manuscripts that we have available to us today, even without having any originals. We can put together the entire Bible with almost 100% accuracy because of the mountain of manuscripts that we have. It's been now, they're saying, for many years they said it was 5,800 manuscripts. Now they're saying it's about 6,000 manuscripts. In addition to all those manuscripts, we also have, um, we have what are called um, lectionaries, which were church worship books that would have a prayer on one page and scripture quoted on another page. And we have many, many hundreds of those available to us. In addition to that, we have the ancient languages where the Bible was copied into those languages, the Coptic, the Syriac, and we have those translations and we have the scripture in that. In addition to all that, if we had no manuscripts, no lectionaries, no other translations, we could put together the entire New Testament simply based on church father quotations with the exception of 11 verses. There is no other ancient book where there are originals. So you need to understand. People say, oh, you don't even have your originals. No ancient book has the originals. None. But other books do not have the mountain of evidence supporting them that the Bible... There's not even a close second. We have manuscripts that go back to at least 100 A.D. Some people say back to within 35 years of the original writing. Which means there wasn't enough time for corruption to take place. In addition, we have... We, ha- we, kept, we keep every manuscript that's ever found. Not like the Muslims that destroy any manuscripts that don't come from one sing- certain family of manuscripts that they've predetermined is the one that they want, that they choose. Anytime any other manuscript that's found outside of that one family, they destroy it. We don't do that. We say we want all the ones we can get so we can continue to compare. The few places where we don't know what the reading would be is often because of a misspelled word, sometimes because two words that sound the same, like here, is it H-E-A-R or H-E-R-E, sounds the same. Sometimes it's just an error because of something like that. Sometimes, it's, many times, it's just a word order. Is it the Lord Jesus Christ or is it Jesus Christ the Lord? In no case is any doctrine impacted. No case whatsoever. When those places where we don't know what ought to go in the blank, because there are different manuscripts that have different readings, it would be like me giving a test and saying, you know, fill in the blank. And then below the blank, I give three choices, A, B, or C. And it's only one of those three choices. That's how it is with our manuscript evidence. We know from all the manuscript what has to go in the blank. It's only one of usually two or three choices. And so it's not like, oh, we just have no idea. We do have good idea. And when we, ha- when we look at those three choices and we can't decide, that's where your Bible will put a little asterisk or a little number next to that word. And in the margin, they'll tell you what the alternate readings could be. So we have every reason to have complete trustworthiness 
in our Bibles. There is no doctrine that's in question. We can put it together with at least 99.9% accuracy to the original. There is nothing else like this. And so there's simply no problem in saying that our Bible is the Word of God. No problem whatsoever. We are not saying, to say it again, that our copies are inspired. God did not inspire the copies. But we can say that our copies are are almost 100% accurate to the original, and where there is discrepancy, no doctrine is impacted whatsoever. That's amazing. The next part of the statement of faith on the Scriptures is that the Bible is the complete revelation of His will for the salvation of men. In other words, the Bible is not lacking in anything that the Christian needs for living the Christian life. It is sufficient. So this is where we get the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Everything you need to know for being saved and for living the Christian life is between the covers of this book. And if it's not here, then God says you don't need to know about it. But everything we need to know for being saved and living the Christian life is here. The sufficiency of Scripture. Here are some verses that back this up. Hebrews 11.3 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not passive. It's not stale. It is living and active. James 1.23, it convicts of sin. Romans 1.16, it regenerates the believer. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. In 1 Peter 2 and John 17, it sanctifies the believer. In Ephesians 16, it withstands Satan's attacks. Satan ha- it, the Bible has withstood all attacks for centuries. It is relevant to every age. How do you explain that? The Bible is as relevant today as it was when it was written. Find another book like that. It speaks to all people in all places. What other book does that? And it is superior in all that it teaches to any and all other religious books. You do not need to go outside the covers of this book for anything that you need to know in your relationship with God. Years ago, there was a conference taking place of the vineyard movement, which was very much involved in at the forefront of the signs and wonders movement. John Wimber was heading it up at the time, and he had, had a, as I believe it was a two-week-long Um, conference healing ministry in Australia. And many of the Australian pastors, theologians, and even medical doctors paid the fee to go to the entire long conference. And at the end of it, some of them had an opportunity to interview with John Wimber. And one of the questions they asked was, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? And with no hesitation, this is all documented, he says, yes, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. The man standing next to him used to be a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I had him as a teacher for first-year Hebrew. And he looked at John Wimber and said, John, that is not true. You do not believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Let me explain to you as a theologian what that means. And it means that there is nothing that you need other than what is right here in this book. 
Everything you need to know is right here. But see, the signs and wonders movement is predicated on new revelations that are being given. And how many churches do you know where people are always looking for new revelations from God? This is the final revelation. It's not to say that God doesn't speak to us today, but He will never say anything that is superior, that is over, that overrides anything in this book. We tell the students when they first come to Hill from the very first night, everything you ever needed to live the Christian life, you got the moment that you placed your faith in Christ. How can you possibly ever need anything more than Jesus? And this book is His Word to us. We don't need anything more than this. It's never Jesus plus. The final part of our statement on Scripture is that it is the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and practice. That pretty much speaks for itself. The Bible is our ultimate authority and final arbiter deciding between what is true and false, what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. Not personal experience, not human authorities, not the church is the final authority. God's Word is. And I might add, and not science. See, everything else in this world is impacted directly by sin. And that includes our minds, our understanding. I so much appreciate having um, Jim Powell here, part of our fellowship, who's got his doctorate in physics. And when he stands and tells us it is a young earth, and what you're hearing from scientists, that it is an old earth, and that it's billions of years old, and the universe continues to expand... And Jim, who can understand that language of physics like I will never be able to understand, says hogwash. What the Bible says is true, and science does not refute what the Scriptures say. Because you can make statistics mean almost anything you want. And sometimes scientists are making science mean whatever they want. It's amazing how even science can be politicized. You start with an assumption and then go set out to prove it. And the Bible is our authority. We're not anti-science. God created science. But we are anti-conclusions, scientific conclusions that go contrary to Scripture. So let me just wrap up with a few thoughts. Inerrancy deals with the content of Scripture. Another word sometimes that's used is infallibility. That deals with the character of Scripture. It's not uncommon to look at doctrinal statements and they will scrupulously avoid the word inerrant or without error. But they will put into their doctrinal statements, we believe the Scriptures are infallible. And many people think, well, it's the same. But it's not. There's a reason, a cunning reason, why they have chosen the word infallible and not the word inerrant. Because infallibility, in their minds, is dealing with the overall character of Scripture. In general, it is the revelation of God. In general, it is truthful. But not dealing with the actual content of Scripture. And so that's why both words are needed. And if you're only going to have one word, choose an errant. When you look at what is true of Jesus... What the Bible says about Jesus. 
and see what the Bible says about itself, you see that they are identical. That shouldn't surprise us. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. It's a reason that God chooses to call His Son, in John chapter 1, the Word. What is true of the written Word is true of Jesus. And if you can accept the divinity of Jesus, you should have no problem accepting the divinity of God's Word, of the Bible. There is no daylight between Jesus and His Word. Jesus is without sin. The Word of God is pure and holy. Jesus was true in all that He said. Even His enemies could not find any untruth in Him. There is no falsehood or error in the Bible. Every word has been tested and found to be true. Jesus is the authority of our lives. There is no greater authority. The Word of God has authority over our lives and even over Satan himself. Jesus had power to perform miracles. And the Word of God has the power to save and to sanctify. Jesus was one, had absolute unity with God. And the Bible says, His word is truth. Thy word is truth. There is an internal unity in Scripture. Jesus as God knows all things. And the Bible is said to be, is described, describes itself as being the source of all wisdom and knowledge. The Bible is absolutely unique. It is without error, it is without sin. It is the only thing in this world untainted by sin. How can that be? Doesn't the Bible say all men are liars? It does. But it doesn't say all men lie all the time. And God can take lying men and use them to speak the truth, to write the truth of what He has said. It's not where God, as I indicated earlier, supersedes or cancels out the personalities and vocabularies of the writers. Not what it is. That's not how the Christian life works. But God speaks by His Spirit to the spirit of men. His thoughts, His words, and their vocabularies. So they write exactly what God wanted to be written. And when you look at Scripture in the original language, it's very clear. Different vocabularies, different personalities from author to author. I was talking about this the other day with our staff, and I said when you take first-year Greek, unless the professor just wants to fail you all, he will not start you with Peter, the letters to Peter, letters of Peter. He won't even start you with Paul's epistles. What he starts you with is John, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. Because it's clear that John's Greek is much simpler. He preferred simple sentences. God is light. God is love. See, Dick, run. See, you know, and it's just, so praise God for John. He, he wrote a simple Greek. Paul, more difficult. Peter, oh goodness. You're praying for the rapture when you start reading... <laughs> But different personalities that God was using, He was not possessing them. Muhammad wrote that he got the Quran by going to a cave on a regular basis, and genies 
would appear to him, which is the Arabic concept of an angel or a demon, and they would control him to such a degree that he said that he could just watch his hand move across the scroll as the pen wrote the, wrote the Quran out. That is not the doctrine of inspiration. We call that mechanical dictation. That is not what the Bible is describing. The Bible is describing God and man are working in harmony with each other. It's not God overruling, overpowering the man. But he is using him in the free and full exercise of his own humanity. And produces his word without error. And because it is the only thing without error, the only thing that is untainted by sin, it is our authority. We should never be bashful about that. What is your authority? I hope we can all say with no reservation or hesitation, it is the scriptures, the Bible. It is the standard, it is the final word on all that is true. To prioritize or elevate anything above the, of the Bible is utter folly. Personal opinion, personal experience, science, church, authorities, all of them have to go under the authority of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. This book is the only thing on this planet, only thing that ever has been, that is totally free of error. My understanding of it is not free of error. I get it. But as it is written, it is the word of God. What a privilege we've been given. There is no church that's free of error. There is no individual that's free of error. But this book is free of error. And you can take it to the bank. This is why the Bible says that we will never be disappointed for having placed our faith in Jesus Christ. But how do you know the Jesus that you've placed your faith in? This book. It's not the Jesus of my imagination. It's the Jesus that's revealed in this book. Place my faith in Him as revealed in this book and I will never be disappointed. Place my faith in what somebody else is teaching is contrary to this book. Oh my. I don't even want to take the risk. Just keep coming back to the Word. This is where God's going to constantly bring us back to is the sure foundation of the Word of God. I'll close this in prayer. God, we are so blessed. People have for centuries given their lives trying to print this book, to write out this book given their lives because they've refused to surrender this book when it's been demanded of them. Because they've understood they are holding in their hands the very word of God. There's so many other things, God, that, that play on our minds and our hearts. We're so tempted to be, to be allowed ourselves to be ruled, God, by the spirit of this world rather than by your word. We have every answer, God, that anyone could ever ask. We have the hope of the ages. We have the eternal word of God. I pray that we would increasingly, God, love you, love your word, be people of the book, as early Christians were called, that we would be known to be the same, people of the book, 
We don't worship the book, God, but we know it is your gift to us. And it is through this book that we know you in truth and worship you in truth. Thank you, God, for what you've given. I pray that it would be hidden in our hearts and that our conduct would be ruled, God, by all that it reveals. And that our lives would be true to you as revealed in your word. In Christ's name, amen.